Hello, all you Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 16. This week, we'll be talking about 1 Kings chapter 5 down through most of 1 Kings chapter 19. However, at the beginning of the week on Sunday, you'll have some special reading designed just for Easter. You'll be reading Matthew chapter 27, verse 11, all the way through the end of the book of Matthew. And we're not going to talk about that Easter reading. We'll save that reading discussion when we get to the book of Matthew in the months to come. Now we pick up in 1 Kings chapter 5. In fact, 1 Kings chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 are all about King Solomon's building projects. In chapter 5, he begins the preparations for several of his building campaigns, securing the help of Hiram, king of Tyre. He would be the supplier of materials for Solomon's projects. Now, beginning a building project means a need for a labor force, and one of the things that Samuel warned the people about years ago was that if you have a king, your men will be conscripted into labor for him. And this is what happens. The text tells us that 30,000 Israelites were put into forced labor. They were divided into three groups of 10,000 each. And their schedule was to work one month, and then they would be off or a break for two months, and they would repeat this process. This ensured that the people were not physically taxed too much, and everyone did their share of the work. Now, chapter 6 provides us some valuable information about how the temple was built. And there are a number of important things in this text, but let me just stop at verse 1 of chapter 6, because this verse is vitally important and one of significance for Bible chronology. In fact, many Bible history students hang a lot of weight on this verse, using it to count backwards and forwards in the world of Bible chronology. Because the dates of Solomon's reign are very certain in both biblical and non-biblical sources, and they date it to 971 to 931, we know for certain that temple construction began in 966 B.C. And so because we have this fixed date, we can go back and date the exodus from Egypt to 1445 B.C. Now further down in chapter 6, there's an interesting verse. Verse 1 was interesting as it relates to Bible chronology, but now look at verse 7 of chapter 6. It says, The stones used in the construction of the temple were finished at the quarry. So there was no sound of hammer, axe, or any other iron tool at the building site. Now that's interesting because today you can go to a building site and you can hear, hear all manner of sounds. Um, but at the temple's building site, there was to be no sound at all. Now the rest of the chapter talks about things inside and outside the temple. And a good Bible atlas or Bible dictionary will give you some clarity. The temple takes seven and a half years to build and would stand for almost 400 years until the days of Nebuchadnezzar. And we'll talk about that temple destruction when we get to the book of Daniel. Now, in the first part of chapter 7, we learn that Solomon builds his palace, a building project that took longer than the temple because it was bigger. The second half of chapter 7 tells us that a man named Huram, not Hiram, the one who supplied the materials, but a different man named Huram from the tribe of Naphtali, was the craftsman who made the pieces of furniture that were to go inside the temple. Now, compared to the tabernacle, the temple furnishings were larger than life. And Solomon also brings in some of the things that his father David had dedicated for worship and placed them in that very temple. You see, in time, the temple also becomes the treasury of Israel, housing the nation's greatest treasures. And then as you flow into chapter 8, you find that the temple is dedicated. The ark is brought into the temple in the first part of chapter 8. And by the way, the ark was the only piece of furniture that was not a new piece of furniture. This was the same ark that was fashioned for the tabernacle nearly 480 years ago. 
Now, the word name occurs 14 times in just verses 16 through 20 of chapter 8. So I think Solomon is telling us that the name of God is very important because the temple was to be used as a house for the name of God. And Solomon stands before the temple and offers the longest recorded prayer in the Bible for its dedication. And there are three important parts to his prayer. First, Solomon stated the truth that God did not really live on earth, but in heaven. Second, Solomon did not confuse the symbol of God's presence, which was the temple, with God himself. And then third, Solomon requested mercy from God when the people broke the law. And so Solomon blesses the people, and a large amount of sacrifices are conducted to consecrate the temple there in chapter 8. Now, God had already appeared to Solomon early on in his reign in 1 Kings chapter 3, but now God appears again to Solomon in chapter 9. David's desire to build a temple for the Lord resulted in the Lord making a covenant with him in which he established David's dynastic succession forever. And now that Solomon had finished the temple, he too was challenged to be obedient and was also promised an everlasting descendancy. However, if he or his sons disobeyed, the result will be the destruction of the temple and the dispersal of the people of Israel into foreign lands. And in fact, we know that actually does happen if you've actually read ahead in your scriptures, and I'm sure most of you have. So the covenant with David and his dynasty was unconditional and eternal, but its benefits only came to those who were loyal to its terms in each generation. So after 20 years of building, Solomon's projects were now finished, and Solomon compensated Hiram, king of Tyre, for all the lumber and gold provided to build. Solomon continued to develop the infrastructure of the nation, improving all that he could for the citizens of Israel. The fame, the wealth, and the wisdom of Solomon had spread all over the world. And so in chapter 10, he receives a visit from the Queen of Sheba, which would be in present-day Yemen. That would be the location of where this queen would have come from. The queen's purpose in visiting Solomon seems to have been to see if he really was as wise and as rich as she had heard. And the rest of chapter 10 summarizes Solomon's wealth. Verse 14 tells us, and this is interesting, that 666 talents of gold were brought into Solomon's kingdom each year. Uh-oh, did you read that? 666, that's not a good number. We'll save the good discussion for 666 until we get to the book of Revelation. But Solomon brings in, we're told, a little more than 25 tons of gold each year. That's the conversion of 666 talents. So in 2020 numbers, today's numbers, that is roughly 1.28 billion yearly. And that's just gold, not other things like spices, goods, gifts, etc. So Solomon also served as an international broker of sorts, using Israel's location in the world to his benefit. For example, goods transported through the nation were taxed. So he had a very good import and export business as well. Now, we should not be criticizing Solomon for being wealthy since it was God who promised to make him rich. We should not blame a person who receives a fortune as an outright gift for having money. It was the accumulation of riches for the purpose of being materially secure that God forbids. And even though Solomon was the wisest man to live, he was a fool for not following his own advice. In chapter 11, we find out Solomon has his downfall, the first mistake being his many foreign wives. While reading chapter 11 of 1 Kings, you'll also want to read Deuteronomy 17, 17. It's a very important cross-reference verse. Listen to what it says. The king must not take many wives for himself, 
because, here's the reason, they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amount of wealth in silver and gold for himself. Solomon's sin of going after other gods, the gods of his foreign wives, was the real crime. But the text in Deuteronomy is very clear. God renders punishment to Solomon, telling him that the kingdom of Israel would be divided in the days of his son. But the kingdom of Israel does begin to disintegrate already during Solomon's last days. The first to break away was Edom, and then to the north Damascus becomes independent of Solomon. But the most painful departure was the secession of the ten northern tribes through the influence of Jeroboam, one of Solomon's trusted advisors. Now a prophet named Ahijah revealed to Jeroboam that the Lord would appoint him ruler over the northern kingdom. And if he would be faithful to God's laws, he and his descendants could expect a long and prosperous time on the throne. When Solomon finds out about Jeroboam and the message of Ahijah, he seeks out Jeroboam to kill him. But Jeroboam escapes to Egypt. And shortly after he left town, we find out that Solomon dies, having reigned for 40 years. And now the kingdom is left into the hands of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. So you move into chapter 12, and once Jeroboam hears that Solomon had died, he is summoned by the people to come back to Israel and help talk some sense into Rehoboam, which is Solomon's son. It's evident that Solomon was a hard master, and the people wanted a lightening of their labor, a lightening of their heavy taxes. Jeroboam approaches Rehoboam with this request. Rehoboam consults his older advisors, ones that were connected to Solomon, and those advisors thought that he should listen to the people. But then Rehoboam asks his younger counselors, the new ones who are green, and they say, let down the hatchet and show the people who's in charge. Well, who do you think Rehoboam listens to? Well, Rehoboam listens to the younger advice, and as a result, the kingdom is split in two, just as God had predicted. So it's roughly at this point that Israel is divided into two kingdoms. And this is what we term the northern kingdom, or the northern tribes, there were ten of them, and the southern kingdom, or the southern tribes, and there were two of them. And those two southern tribes were Judah and Benjamin. So throughout the next couple of books in the Bible, we'll refer to these as the northern kingdom, or the southern kingdom, or the kings of the north, or the kings of the south. And this also means that from now on, Israel is going to have two rulers, ruling simultaneously at times. Now, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, will rule over the southern kingdom, while Jeroboam will rule over the northern kingdom. And this division will last until we get to 2 Kings chapter 17 and beyond. Now, I will do my best in helping you understand all these numbers, because the dates and who was ruling when is going to get a little muddy starting now. And as a help, just know that the text often goes back and forth, from the northern ruler to the southern ruler. Sometimes you might have a ruler who stays on for a long time while other, the other kingdom goes through three or four different rulers. In the email that you're going to receive this week with the podcast, I'm going to see if I can place an attachment for you to download a chart that might help you visually understand all these numbers. But let's go to Jeroboam. Jeroboam from the northern kingdom does something drastic. He chooses to alter the religion of the northern kingdom just enough to deprive Jerusalem of its role as the only center of a unified worship of the Lord. Jeroboam makes two golden calves and places them in the north and in the south of his kingdom. He was claiming that these calves were a visible representation of the Lord. He was not saying that the Lord was a calf. 
He also changed the religious calendar and the priesthood. He was, in essence, introducing his own version of the worship of the Lord. This polluted religious system would be the element that pushes the northern kingdom downhill to corruption and captivity. Gross forms of paganism would be introduced easily since the true worship of the Lord had been abandoned. And more than 20 times in Scripture, Jeroboam is called the man, quote, who made Israel sin, unquote. Now, as you move into chapter 13, God sends a young prophet from Judah to announce a prophecy that God would judge Jeroboam for his apostasy. When this prophet arrived, Jeroboam was offering incense, something only a priest alone was allowed to do. And so this prophet confronts the king, and the prophet predicted that the time would come when a Davidic king, Josiah by name, would demolish these pagan shrines. Wow, let me think about this. What a prediction. 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 15 and 16 is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, when Jeroboam hears the prediction, he reaches out to grab the prophet, but his arm is paralyzed and helpless. And he asks for the prophet to restore his hand, and the prophet does restore his hand back to health. And so now Jeroboam sees this advantage of having a prophet on his side and in his kingdom. And so he asks for a meal with the prophet, but this prophet refused and walked away. Now, the text continues and tells us that this younger prophet, as he is leaving town, is confronted by an older prophet. This older prophet probably served the Lord at one time, but at this time had compromised away his spiritual usefulness. This older prophet invents up a message, saying that it came from God. He wanted to deceive this younger prophet. The younger prophet believed the older prophet's message, accepted the invitation to eat, and later, this prophet dies under God's judgment as a result, because God had told this younger prophet not to eat, not to do anything, and to come right back. Now, take note of this incident carefully. The unnamed young prophet knew God's command. He also knew that God does not contradict his word. He should have known that something was wrong with what the older prophet was saying. This incident illustrates the importance of complete obedience to God's word. In spite of his own unfaithfulness, the old prophet still admires the young friend and gave him an honorable burial as was possible. The incident does do anything, doesn't do anything to deter Jeroboam because his apostasy continues. Now in contrast to chapter 13 where God sent prophets to deal with Jeroboam's new religion, the first part of chapter 14, God deals with Jeroboam's descendants. We find out that Jeroboam's son, Abijah, becomes very sick. And so Jeroboam sends his wife in disguise to the very prophet that told Jeroboam he would be king over the northern kingdoms. Well, as the story goes, Jeroboam had become the polar opposite of David. And for this and for other violations of God's trust, he and his family would come to a sudden end. When Jeroboam's wife returned to the capital city with this bad news, her son dies. And later Jeroboam would also die. And so in the second half of chapter 14, it returned back to the southern kingdom being ruled by Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And we are told that in the fifth year, the Egyptians besieged and plundered Jerusalem on their way north through the land. Rehoboam and Jeroboam through this time were in constant conflict with one another. Both men began ruling their separate kingdoms in 930 BC, and they ruled simultaneously. So Rehoboam, Solomon's son, rules the southern kingdom for a total of 17 years. And Jeroboam, Solomon's commander of his labor force, his trusted advisor, ruled the northern kingdom for a total of 22 years. So you can see you've got two rulers ruling simultaneously, but one is ruling longer than the other one. So as we come into chapter 15, 
Jeroboam is still ruling in the north when Rehoboam's son, Abijam, comes to rule the southern kingdoms. This son, Abijam, rules for only three years, and it seems that Abijam's religion, excuse me, his reign, only knew war and nothing else, and he picks up the warlike attitudes of his father, uh, that his father had against Jeroboam, and continues in those ways until his death. And you're going to see a reoccurring phrase in the book of Kings, a phrase that will compare the reign of these kings back to David. He was the example that all the kings sought to follow. And many of the southern kingdoms, kings were good, but all of the northern kings were evil and took the nation further into sin. Also in chapter 15, the reign of Asa begins. And this is the son of Abijam, the king in the south. He begins his 41-year rule in the last year of Jeroboam's reign in the north. And so Asa's rule was characterized as good. He instituted some reforms and even went as far as removing his own grandmother from her position in the kingdom because she had some idolatrous influences. And during Asa's rule in the south, six other kings come on the scene from the north. Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri, Omri, and Ahab. So while Asa is ruling in the south, let's briefly talk about each of these six kings from the north. First, there's Nadab. Nadab is the successor to Jeroboam, and he reigns just two short years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and was killed by assassination. So this brings to the end the dynasty that Jeroboam thought he was going to have in the north. But because he didn't want to walk in the ways of the Lord, his dynasty was snuffed out and replaced by another man named Basha which is referenced in chapter 16. Basha was not related to Jeroboam, to Jeroboam by blood, and so he begins his own dynasty. Basha reigns for 24 years. Now remember, Asa is still ruling in the south. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, Basha does, and a prophet named Jehu came to him to announce his destruction. Now, Basha located his capital city in Tirzah during his year as ruler, and Basha dies and is replaced by his son Elah. And Elah rules a two short years and is met but and it and meets his fate by the hands of an assassin named Zimri, who followed up Elah's death by also killing all of Basha's family. So Zimri kills off the short lived dynasty that Basha had. However, Zimri does not stay on the throne very long, for just seven days, for just one week. And then Omri, the commander of Israel's armies, learned of Elah's murder, and so he comes to the capital city to avenge Elah, to deal with Zimri. But Zimri does not go quietly, setting the palace on fire, and actually Zimri dies in the flames. So halfway through chapter 16, the people of the north are in controversy about who should take the throne. Half the people wanted a man named Tibna, and the other half wanted Omri. And for six years, this controversy continues, and finally, Omri wins out. Omri becomes king in the north. Asa is still reigning in the south. Omri would create the third family dynasty in the northern kingdom. It seems that secular history celebrates Omri's 12-year reign, but his 12 years in scripture are only given six short verses. That's interesting. He moved the capital city of the northern kingdom from uh, Tirzah to Samaria in the middle of his reign. That's the capital city that would stay, the capital city of the northern kingdom would stay in Samaria until the Assyrian invasion and the exile of the northern kingdom later on. Now, wicked King Omri was followed by an even more wicked king named Ahab. And we find that at the end of chapter 16. So, reviewing what we said before, during Asa's rule in the south, 
six other kings come on the scene from the north. Nadab, Basha, Basha, excuse me, Elah, Zimri, Omri, and now Ahab. And to this point, Ahab gets the reward for the most wicked king. Chapter 16, verse 33 says this about him. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. But likely he was even more, even more wicked than Ahab was his foreign wife, Jezebel. So now the pace of moving quickly from one ruler to the next slows down in chapters 17 through 19. Um, and I imagine you're taking a breath now. <laughs> And chapter 17 through 19 introduced Elijah. As God had done before, so he does again. He raises up a prophet to reveal his word to the present king that judgment was coming. Ahab's apostasy was permitted to continue for 14 years before God raised up his prophetic challenger. You know, whoever says that God is not long-suffering and patient with all of mankind has not read the Old Testament. God's grace is all over these pages. God's grace is even on this man Ahab giving him 14 years to turn himself around. These three chapters, chapters 17, 18, and 19, form one story in which the problems and degrees of difficulty increase. It was God's way of strengthening the faith of Elijah, it seems. In chapter 17, Elijah appears on the scene with news that God was sending a drought because of the people's sin. Why a drought? Well, because Baal worshippers believe that their storm god made the rain. So God tells Elijah to leave town and head to Cherith, and there God provides for his needs. But after the book dries up, he's told to move on. And he comes to the city of Zarephath, where he finds a widow who provides for his needs. Elijah also provides for the widow, as God's favor is dramatically seen upon Elijah. As you move into chapter 18, you find that Elijah is told to go to Ahab. Predictably, Ahab blames Elijah for all of his troubles. But Elijah shifts the blame and says that Ahab is at the heart of all of Israel's idolatrous ways. And to demonstrate this case, his God is more powerful than any of Baal's God. Elijah poses a contest. Ahab is to gather all the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and there have them call on their gods to ignite a sacrifice while he calls on the Lord to do the same. And the prophets of Baal were not able to come through, but the God of Israel came through. Elijah offers a short prayer and fire comes down from heaven consuming everything. With the issue settled, Elijah put all the prophets of Baal to death and then warned Ahab that the drought was about to end. Well, Jezebel didn't like being publicly embarrassed by Elijah, and she is determined to get rid of this troublemaker. So instead of standing strong on the victory that God gave him on the mountaintop, Elijah tucks his tail and runs the other way in chapter 19. And he finds himself at Horeb, the same mountain that God appeared to Moses on. And after listening to his complaining spirit, the Lord offers Elijah comfort and assurance in the form of God's still, small voice. Elijah is told to return and anoint three different people, Hazel as king of Syria, Jehu as king in the north, and Elisha as successor to himself. These three men would be used by God to purge Israel of Baal worship. I wish we had more time to talk about the life of Elijah. And there's so many valuable lessons and truths to be mind out from this text, but we've got to stop for today. Next week, we'll pick up with the second half of chapter 19 and continue on. If you have any questions, don't forget to send them to Bible reading at lmbc.org, and I will talk with you all next week.